0: So today we're going to be continuing our series on reading Scripture in context. Um, now, we talked about how it's important to understand what section of the Bible you happen to be reading. Uh, whether you're reading, um, you know, a section which is the uh, first five books, the Pentateuch, which is the history of the covenant. Maybe you're reading a section that's, you know, wisdom literature and poetry, or or maybe it's, uh, you know, documenting the life of Jesus and and the creation of the church, right? and understanding which section you're in helps us not make mistakes when we're reading scripture. It helps us to understand how the original reader would have heard that. So so today we're going to move on to talking about scripture in the context of civilization. In other words, who was the major power at the time? Now, if you'll allow me to nerd out for a second, my, my favorite video game series of all time, well, one of them, is a game called Civilization. You you basically, over the course of thousands of years, um, create units and send them out to explore the world, uh, to, to, to research new technologies, develop amazing cultures, um, find other uh, civilizations and either bargain with them, barter with them, uh, you know, make make peace with them or make war with them, sort of however you decide you want to to, to be there. Um, and, And I sort of bring this up because understanding the context of what civilization happens to be in power at any given time helps to make sure that we're not reading the Bible in a vacuum. So one point I would make today is please don't read the Bible in a vacuum. For one, it's loud, it's dusty, it's dark, and it scares the cat. No, wait, that's just a vacuum in general. Um, It's okay, you can laugh, I I, I don't mind. It's also okay if you don't laugh, I understand. Um, Maybe instead of vacuums, we should talk about forklifts. Follow me, follow me for a minute, This, this will make sense. You know what a forklift is, people we know? Here's a picture, maybe it'll help a little bit. The first modern forklift drivers were almost universally women. For some of you, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. For some of you, you're like, wait, what? But if I add a tiny bit of context to that statement, anybody who studied history, it will probably make sense to. For example, the context is, it was created in Britain in around 1916. And now I see heads going, oh, okay, yeah. So why do you think all of the initial forklift drivers were almost universally women? World War I, exactly, any, any man that was of working age was probably off fighting the war at that time, right? And I say this because it helps us to remember that historical context matters, right? And so, what does this have to do with civilizations? Well, did anyone take a world civilization class in either high school or, or college or anything like that? Yes, some, don't worry, if it was years ago, there's not gonna be a quiz. Um, but I would ask one question, when you do that, where do those classes almost universally start? Any guesses? Okay, I hear Egypt, anyone else? Mesopotamia, right? Interestingly, okay, so, so, so there, yeah, this world civilization classes, they do that. Why is this important? Well, we want to make sure that we're not reading the Bible in a vacuum, right? Uh, we are going to be talking about history. I promise to do my best to make this interesting, so, so don't like tune out here. Um, in terms of where I want to start, yep, Mesopotamia, Sumer, right? The Sumerians, I don't know about you, but pretty much every world civic class that I took, they all started in Sumer, or sometimes in autumn. Um, but, but it was always, you know, the Sumerian civilizations and then the Akkadian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. I, I, I'm not going to go into all of that, but I will say that it's important to understand what's going on in Mesopotamia when we start reading scripture. So what is, what is Mesopotamia? Why, why do we care? Well, Mesopotamia, it's, uh, it just means uh, between two rivers, right? It's a couple of Greek words, Mesopotamia. But, but we care about the Tigris and the Euphrates River and sort of what is the land area around that at the time. So here's a little, little map of that so you can see what's going on there. Uh, geographically, we're talking about the land area that covers, you know, parts of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, uh, uh, you know, Kuwait, places like that. Um, and we care about Mesopotamia because Mesopotamia is the transition from the prehistoric to the historic which just means people started writing stuff down, right? That's prehistory means people didn't write anything down. So when we're looking at that, why do we care about it from a biblical standpoint? Well, we talked about knowing what part of Scripture you're in and understanding the context of that. In this case, I want to start with the Pentateuch, right? Fancy Greek word, it just means, you know, five books. It's the first five books of the Bible, Uh, you know, the book of the law, if you're reading through Scripture and wondering how it refers to it. We talked last week about how this section is the history that chronicles the establishment of the covenant God makes with Abraham and with the Israelite people. Okay, so that's interesting. But why Mesopotamia? Well, Mesopotamia because it starts in a place called Haran. So I'm gonna read a little bit of scripture here. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife, Sarai and his brother's son, Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and all the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. So we don't know precisely when a lot of this is happening. Historically, you may notice I'm not throwing dates out here. There's a reason for that. Dates are boring. That's not really the point here. It's probably either the Akkadian Empire or the first Babylonian Empire. It's probably something like that. But that's really the time period that we're talking about here. Now in this part of Mesopotamia, they developed writing. But they also developed the first written code of laws. So now we have a cultural context that we're reading this establishment of the family that that God wants to use to bless the entire world, right? This, This first covenant, they come about in a time where if you break the law, you know what's gonna happen to you, which means fewer people tend to break the law, which means it's a little bit safer of a time to be alive. Another thing that's going on here is there are radical advances in agriculture, which means that you can send a settler like Abram off into the wilderness to establish a farm, a farmstead, and basically create a new life for themselves. So, as we're reading through scripture, right, we read through the parts of Mesopotamia here uh, where where Abram is traveling, but specifically we read about the story of that family, right? So we read about Abram, and, and God eventually changes his name to Abraham as part of that covenant relationship. We read about his son, Isaac, and and his son, Jacob, who later has his name changed to Israel, right? Uh, Things go pretty well for this family for a number of years, right? Until eventually they run into a problem, which is a famine. So if you know anything about the ancient world at this time, you probably know where people are going to go if there's a famine, and that's Egypt. Egypt is sometimes called by historians the breadbasket of the ancient world, right? So it's, it's not at all a surprise when, you know, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get food when they're in the middle of a famine, right? The assumption is, well, Egypt's gonna have food, you know, it just how it happens, you know, we read the story of Joseph, we know how they end up having food at this time. But that tends to be the case throughout history and Egypt is going to end up being the major world power for quite a number of years. Now, I'm I'm guessing most people have at least heard a little bit about the story where, you know, the Hebrew people are slaves in Egypt, and God uses Moses to lead them out of Egypt across the Red Sea, and they wander in the desert for, for decades until they're finally ready to enter the promised land of Canaan, right? the fulfillment of that covenant that God made with Abraham, that his descendants would come to inhabit this land. So geographically, Canaan is located pretty far southwest of that Mesopotamian region. So all the empires that, that, that rise and fall in Mesopotamia, they're not really concerned with Canaan because they're concerned with another major power, which is Egypt, right? So the Egyptian uh, um, monarchies and, and the different empires there in Mesopotamia, they're constantly battling with each other to see who's going to be the major world power. And eventually, we start to see, while that's going on, the Hebrew people go into the land of Canaan, right? The book of Joshua documents how faithful God is to the covenant promise he makes. So the 12 tribes of Israel end up taking over the land of Canaan, and and each tribe sort of has their own little area. Um, And over time, we see this constant fulfillment of the covenant promises by God. And we talked last week about how that's in stark contrast to the book of Judges, where we see how Israel is just incapable of maintaining that covenant relationship, right? Um, The book of uh, of Judges, biblical scholars refer to what's going on here as the cycle of apostasy. Now, some of you who've been here for years and years may remember that term from a while back. Apostasy is just a fancy theology term. It means to turn your back on your God. Uh, But the cycle of apostasy basically looks like this. Everything is going great for Israel, and they're like, hey, life is good. Life is great. We don't need God. So they stop worshiping God. They start worshiping other idols. They turn their back on on that covenant promise. God then sends somebody to oppress them, somebody to remind them they need God. Then the Israelites cry out, help, help, I'm being oppressed. They ask God to come in and help them with this, and God sends somebody to save them. Then things are going great for Israel, and Israel eventually decides, well, we don't need God lather, rinse, repeat. This cycle just continues over and over and over again. If you've ever wondered, is the God in the Old Testament a God of grace? The book of Judges is a great place to go and read because you will be amazed at how many times the Israelites turn their back on God and he will do whatever it takes to bring them back into that covenant relationship with him. It's an unbelievable story of grace on on the part of God so what about these oppressors who are these oppressors right because god's constantly sending oppressors well we're talking here about reading scripture in context now obviously as the israelite people go in and they take over this land the people that were there before don't like the fact that their land was taken over so so some of these oppressors are going to be those folks but as we look at what's going on between the 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 rulers in egypt and the rulers in mesopotamia we also see this constant power struggle where they are displacing various peoples. And those peoples have nowhere else to go. They look at Canaan and go, hmm, land flowing with milk and honey sounds good to me. And so they're going in to try and take that over. Now, throughout this whole time, Israel doesn't have a king, right? Which is in stark contrast to what's going on all all around them, right? Every other major people has a king of some sort, you know, some, some leader that leads them in battle. Israel doesn't have that, really. Israel has a series of judges, you know, people that, that stand for God, right, and, and, and will, will help bring wisdom to folks. And after that, we start reading the book of Samuel and the book of Kings, and we see that Israel asks God for a king. Now, you could do an entire message series on why this is a bad idea. Because part of that covenant that, that God made with them is, I will be your king and you will be my people. And now they're asking for a king to lead them in battle and to do all this other kind of stuff. But, but eventually God says, "Okay, fine. I'm going to give you a king." So when we read the stories of, of Saul and David and Solomon, right? We we read the story of the of the kings, the first kings of Israel. It's a kingship covenant that gets created here, and that goes okay for a little while, right? All twelve tribes are are sort of unified under one king, but before long. It, they end up having all kinds of issues, and the ten tribes in the north stay as Israel, and a couple of tribes in the south split off and become the kingdom of Judah. So now as you're reading through the prophets, you know, the, the the section of the Bible that's all these different prophets, you'll see so-and-so was a prophet to Israel or a prophet to Judah. What they're talking about here is which of those kingdoms they happen to be in. And the more you know about why that schism occurred the more it makes sense why certain prophets have certain messages for certain kings. So we've got this this time where we've got a couple of different kingdoms, that goes on for a little while. But eventually, the Mesopotamian power of Assyria becomes the dominant player in the world. And they decide they just wanna take over this area. Now, when the Assyrians want to wage war, they basically have a specific way they do it. They say, you have two choices. You can pay us tribute, pay us taxes, or we will wipe you off the map. That's your choice. And Israel says, well, we don't like that idea, right? This is the northern kingdom of Israel. They're the ones that are closest to Mesopotamia. They're like, we don't like that deal. We are not going to be paying you any money. And the Assyrians wipe them off the map. So now there's no more kingdom of Israel. We only have the kingdom of Judah in the south. Meanwhile, the people in the kingdom of Judah are looking up there at Israel going, hmm, that's problematic. And then the Assyrians march through Israel and come to Judah. And they say, hi, we have two choices for you. You can either pay us money. Yes, yes, tell us about paying money. We, we want to hear more about paying you money. Yes, how, how much money? But, but yes, we're, we're okay. Yeah, we, we're, we're cool with that. We saw what you did to Israel. Okay. So Judah now enters into a relationship where they're paying tribute to the Assyrian government. Okay, that's pretty cool. The Assyrian government the major world power. We know they just took out a conglomeration of 10 tribes, this smaller area of two tribes. Okay, that makes sense. And then some of the kings in Judah start saying, I don't know if I like this relationship. So you read through some of these prophecies, and the prophets are going, uh, guys, that's a really bad idea. Don't start messing with Assyria. That's a bad idea, right? The more we know about the context of what's going on through the historical record, the more that becomes not God bringing this amazing wisdom to the kings as much as it is to the the reader at the time going, what were those kings thinking, right? So the context shifts when you're trying to understand what it is we're reading and what it is God's trying to tell us. So the next world power that comes onto the scene is Babylon, right? Babylon takes over Mesopotamia. Uh, This is the second Babylonian empire. It doesn't last very long, but they have a very different way of waging war. When they come in, they don't say, give us money or we'll wipe you off the map. They say, give us money or you're gonna regret it. And what they mean by you're gonna regret it is, they will make sure that you do not have any ability to revolt against them. And they do that by taking away Anybody that's capable of making weapons, making tools, making armor, making money, (laughs) you know, hiring mercenaries. So if you're a merchant, if you're an iron worker of any kind, uh, uh, if you're a member of the aristocracy, if you're smart, you're basically gonna be carted all the way back to Babylon. So whoever's left there, more or less just subsist on farming, and that's all that they can do. This is referred to as the time of exile, right? So when you're reading through the book of Daniel, and you read these stories about Daniel in the lion's den, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, and you read these stories about how different kings are, are, are treating them, that's what's going on. These are people that have been carted back to Babylon, and they're there in exile, and they can't go home. Well, that is until the next major world power shows up, which happens to be Persia. Persia treats everyone even differently. Persia looked at sort of what happened with Babylon. Babylon didn't last very long. And Persia goes, okay, we're gonna take this a little bit differently. So Persia says, okay, if you were carted off to Babylon, feel free to go back to your home. You can go back there. And in fact, if you don't have enough money to rebuild those great great monuments you had before, we will give you money and help you rebuild those things. We will help you reestablish your kingdom. Right? And they basically say, as long as you're paying us tribute, we're fine with that. You can have your own culture. You can flourish like that. And that's where the Old Testament ends. This is the historic period where we get to the end of the book of Malachi. And it's like, OK, so what happens between here and the New Testament when Jesus comes? Because there's several hundred years in there. Well, some of you, if you've studied history, you may have heard about this obscure guy named Alexander. Um, who shows up from Greece yeah Alexander the Great basically takes over the entire known world some of the rulers of Greece don't treat the Israelites very well now this isn't documented in the Bible but we have historical record and that historical record that we have allows us to then go back and look and go oh so this is what was going on to God's chosen people right up until the time of Christ right So the Greeks, when they come in, they're trying to obliterate the entirety of the Jewish religion and most of of the culture that's there, and one of the ways that they did this, they actually had somebody that came in and sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem, uh, you know, basically making it ceremonially unclean forever, that's sort of the the idea there. So the Jewish people actually revolt, and for a time, they manage to have a small bit of independence from Greece until the next major world power shows up, which happens to be Rome. Rome has a very different way, again, of approaching people, right? When Rome takes you over, what Rome does is they come in and they say, look, you can have your culture, you can have your own laws, you can have your own currency. We don't really care. Swear allegiance to Caesar first and pay your taxes. As long as you do that, we're not gonna have any problems. You know, don't don't break the laws of Rome. You can have your own laws too. You can do your thing, yeah. Rome. Rome. Oh, Rome, I'm sorry, yes. Rome, yes, sorry, I, for some reason it doesn't always click for me. Now, this takes place several decades before Jesus, and it introduces a time that historians refer to as Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. It's a relatively peaceful time where the Romans come in and make some pretty amazing changes to the world. The Romans realized that one of the reasons that ancient civilizations fail is that it's not possible for them to send a message from one end of the empire to the other in anything resembling a reasonable period of time. It can take months or years for messages to get from point A to point B. And you're not guaranteed they're going to get there. So the Romans set out to establish a system of roads that connect the entire empire together. So when you read through history and you hear phrases like, all roads lead to Rome, This is why, like the Romans really wanted to push this idea of a universal, awesome system of roads. Some of these roads are still standing today, like they have modern drainage technology. They are kind of a marvel of the ancient world. They're also patrolled. So now, when Jesus is born, he's born into a world where you have nearly universal travel available to you. You've got a language that most of the people understand. You've got a system of currency you can use in all of these different areas. Now, if you were going to try and manufacture a cultural environment in which to launch a religion that's going to change the world, that sounds like a pretty good one to me, right? So when we, when we see these stories about Jesus traveling all this distance, and, and the, you know, the apostles traveling all this distance, and as the church is being founded, and they're, they're, they're founding branches of, of, of the early Christian church in all of these different areas around the ancient world, right? This is what we're talking about. And knowing the culture of those areas gives us a lot more insight into what's being written in the letters that, that, the, that are being written to the churches in those areas. So Again, the the idea here is to not read the Bible in a vacuum, right? To to understand the context, the historical context, the cultural context. Um, The challenge for last week was to read Scripture as the way God chooses to reveal himself to us. The challenge I would give you for this week is to think of history as something more than just a boring collection of dates and names that you have to remember, right? I want you to think of history as the stage on which all of the stories of scripture unfold, right? I want to encourage you to think of reading through history, studying history, studying what is going on in the cultures, the context that scripture is written in. Think of that as an act of worship, right? It's not just this boring thing that you have, okay, I've got this history class and 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 okay, I've I've got these these Bible stories, and okay, I've got these other things. It's all related. And just because you're reading a particular history of what the day-to-day life looked like in Greece doesn't mean that you're not worshiping God, right? Understanding that cultural context is important. All right, let me pray for us. Um, God, I would ask that you would be with us throughout the rest of this week. I know sometimes it's really easy to be caught up in, in, you know, what we happen to be reading and not understanding it and and, and being frustrated by that. Help us to remember that every time we read scripture, we can get something different out of it. Help us to understand that the more we study, the more we learn. And the more we learn, the more likely we are to be hearing the truth that you want to tell us rather than just the church history that maybe we think we know. Help us to remember that whatever Scripture is telling us is how you are trying to reveal yourself to us. Help us not to read the Bible in a vacuum. Amen.